I'd like to welcome everyone signing on with us on Facebook Live. Right there. Now or later. Some people watch it later. Some people are jumping on right now. And you might be listening on our podcast online. Welcome. Hello. Good morning. See some faces we haven't seen in a little bit. It's good. It's good. It's my great joy to welcome you today. My name is Josh Houston. I'm one of the pastors here at Dwell Church. We are continuing our February sermon series, circling around our core values. We've been talking this month about culture. We've been talking about what makes us us. That's why we're calling this sermon series, This Is Us. This month, we've been peeling back the layers on who we are as a church, um, talking about what kind of culture what type of church we intend to be and produce here at Dwell Church. And to do so, we're circling around our four core values. Obviously, as a church, we value many things, uh, but we have four values that we consider central as we pursue knowing Jesus and making him known. Our core values are the way of Jesus, come as you are, church as family, and local and global mission. Two weeks ago, I began this series on the way of Jesus. Last week, Jackie preached an awesome message on Come As You Are. If you missed either of those messages, I I highly encourage you to go back and listen to them. You can find it on our Facebook Live or on our podcast. Next week, Nick will be preaching on local and global mission. And today, we're going to jump into church as family. And here's what we're going to hit this morning. I want to talk about family. I'm going to talk about family and America and divine adoption. And then I want to talk about feet and about power and about towels and masks and conflict and imitation and healing. Does that sound good? Let's jump into it. Family. When we look at scripture, when we look at the Bible, we see that family is the dominant metaphor for the church. Yes, the church is called the body of Christ. We're called the bride of Christ. We're called branches that abide in him. But the principal symbol to portray who we are is family. We've been called family by God. Beloved kids of a compassionate and tender Heavenly Father. Therefore, we choose here at Dwell Church to live out church as family. Now, here's the thing. Because God has called the global church family, that means we don't have a choice about being family. I'll show you what I mean. Take the Houston family, for example. My wife and I, Amanda and I, we have two kids, Aria and Shiloh, and their blood. They're siblings, whether they like it or not, no matter, about, no matter their preference on the matter, they're family. They don't have a choice about it. They're, the choice they are given is what kind of family they want to be, the kind of siblings, the kind of kids. That's their decision to, to make, not ours, not mine. Similarly, God has called us his children. We're divine blood. We're siblings whether we like it or not. Regardless of our preference on the matter, we're family. We don't have a choice about it. The choice we're given is what kind of family we want to be. The kind of kids, the kind of siblings. That's our decision to make, not God's. We get to determine whether this family, this church family, is going to send people to therapy because of our dysfunctional attitudes and behaviors, or if people are going to be drawn to our family because of how life-giving this is. This is what I want to unpack today. We already are family, but we get to choose the kind of family we want to be. That's what I want to pull back on. What kind of family do we want to be here? And the reason we need to confront this is because we all interpret family very different. 
For some of you, the idea of family may bring with it a sense of, of comfort or nostalgia. Like, my mom is my best friend, or my, my siblings and I, we go on a vacation every single year together. Church is family. This is the kind of church I want to be a part of. But for others, the word family may cause the hairs on your neck to stand up. Oh, church is family. So we abuse each other here? We belittle each other? We fight each other to get ahead of each other? Because that's what family means for me. I'm not naive enough to think that everyone had an enjoyable family of origin experience. And I realize just bringing up the concept of family is going to crash up against your framework up against your paradigm, up against your experience of family. I say family, and everyone here interprets that different. So we ask ourselves this question, what kind of family do we want to be? But we have to realize that everybody comes to the table different. Everybody comes to the table with their own baggage, with their own traditions and their own trauma and their own wounds. We bring our whole selves to the table, each of us, and that's okay. It's actually really great. But we also have to keep in mind that everybody comes to the table different because, we're, because assuming that, that everybody's going to come to the table the way you do or to come with the same um, experience as you had, it's a false assumption. Whether your, your experience was good or bad, nobody's going to bring the same experience to the table that you do. Also to note, if you grew up in America, the idea of family for you probably exhibits individualistic tendencies. So to illustrate, again, my daughter, Aria, she's four years old. She just turned four. She is intelligent, and she's creative, and she's lively, and she's compassionate at times, but generally, she's pretty narcissistic. She doesn't mind interrupting something if she wants a snack. She doesn't mind running around the house if somebody's trying to take a nap. She doesn't mind waking me up in the, in the middle of the night to watch her poop. She thinks about what she's going to eat. She thinks about her enjoyment. She thinks about her comfort. Sure, she has these moments of consideration for others, moments of thinking beyond herself, but generally, she's about her. And that should be expected, right? She's four years old. But what's the hope, the goal? As she gets older, she's going to have to learn to think beyond her own life, to take into considerations the feelings and the thoughts and the experiences of others, Arya is going to need to learn into a new way of life that helps make other things beautiful, not just her life comfortable. You following? Arya reminds me a lot of America. Intelligent, creative, lively, compassionate at times, but generally pretty narcissistic. She thinks about what she's going to eat. She thinks about her enjoyment. She thinks about her comfort. Sure, she has moments of consideration for others, moments of thinking beyond herself, but generally, she's about her. For those of us who've lived in America for a good chunk of our lives, we've been programmed for radical individualism. We've been trained to believe that the immediate needs of the individual are more important than the long-term health and well-being of the group, whatever the group is. We've been taught that my dreams, my goals, my personal fulfillment is what matters most. And this approach to life, it affects how we do education. It, ha- it affects how we do entertainment. It affects our relationships with guns and with money. It affects the way we take care of the earth. And when we zoom way out, what we see is that our individualism, it produces values. And these values produce systems. And these systems 
damage people. We live in a world where many of us care more about the protection of our personal rights and our luxuries and our privileges than we do the well-being of the group. Now, please hear me. What I'm not saying or suggesting is that we become some socialist commune. Of course, there are strengths to capitalistic societies and individualism. However, in world history, this is a relatively new approach to life. When we look at human history, America is a toddler. And eventually, she's going to need to learn into a new way of life, one that helps make other things beautiful, not just her life comfortable. When we look at human history, nearly all other societies have been and continue to be collectivist in their worldview. The majority of the people who have ever lived on the planet have simply assumed that the enjoyment of the individual takes a backseat to the well-being of the group. Whether that's family or village or religious community. And here's what's counterintuitive to us. People who embrace this worldview, people who embrace a strong group worldview, they're convinced that this worldview is in their best interest. It's fascinating. And we see this in scripture. I don't know if you're aware of this, but personal savior appears nowhere in scripture. Having a personal relationship with God is an American construction, not a biblical one. Or look at marriage in America or the dysfunction that is marriage in America. People jump into, many people jump into marriage to begin a new life, to start something new and fresh and their own. But in scripture, marriage was about the continuation of what your family had been building for generations. You didn't start anything. You stood on the shoulders of those who went before you. You joined this extensive narrative that has been building. To take it a level deeper, in scripture, marriage wasn't even the highest priority relationship. In Mediterranean society, the closest, the deepest relationship was blood. Blood always ran deeper than romantic love, which meant the most treacherous act of disloyalty somebody could do was the betrayal of blood. So think of the first significant sin recorded after the fall. It's not the breakup of marriage. It's not the murder of a spouse. It's the murder of a brother. And to Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper? the ancient world would have responded, yes. Yes, Cain, you are your brother's keeper. This is the biblical context, strong group culture. The individual exists as part of a tribe to better the tribe. Your blood, your tribe is who you are. But then Jesus comes along. Man, this guy saying some pretty counter cultural things, even offensive things. He told one man, follow me. And the guy says, can I bury my father first? And he says, let the dead bury their dead. Jesus told others, I didn't come to bring peace. I came with a sword. I came to turn a man against his father, a woman against her mother. A man's enemies will become members of his household. Anyone who loves mother or father or son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus, suave, suavemente. Another time, some people tell Jesus, your mother and your brothers are looking for you. And he looks around and he says, who are, my mothers and my, who are my mother and my brothers? And then he says, here, all these people, whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brother. This is scandalous talk. Jesus' primary loyalty goes to family. And essentially how he puts it is, I'm not asking you to sever relationship with blood. I'm asking you to reorder primary loyalty. 
I'm asking you to let something take first position, which is the, the, the new surrogate family that I'm inviting you into, and it's called the family of God. And where conflict between your blood family and God's family presents itself, the faith family takes precedence. No wonder as Jesus' ministry is progressing, more and more people are abandoning him. (laughs) This guy sounds like a loon. I mean, Jesus, you can't just come in and reorder cultural paradigms. Who does that? He's taking their current family worldview and he just flips it on its head. It's not, like, it's not that he throws it out. He just turns it inside out. It's a wild notion. Commitment to God is commitment to God's group. And here's the core of it. When people choose to follow Jesus, they get a new father. But that also means they get new siblings. Because these two relationships are inseparable. The father comes with his kids. Oh, it's so good. In this eternal family, race doesn't separate siblings. And this eternal family socioeconomic status does not separate siblings. If you put your faith in Jesus, you're part of the family of God. You've been, a, you've been divinely adopted by our Heavenly Father. This is the power of the church. It's not a religious institution. It's not a mere nonprofit organization. It's not a business with morals and ethics. It's a family. So for us, church's family is not some empty phrase. It's not some cold institutional core value. It's laced with meaning. It's our way of pushing back against the tendency to isolate. It's pushing back against the inclination that we all feel to alienate ourselves from the community that we so desperately need, especially in L.A. As inconvenient as it may be, as challenging as it may be, we live out church as family, not church as a good show, not church as moral responsibility, not church as a networking tool for my career, church as family. And there are a lot of different angles I could take. I prayed, really prayed through it, God. What, what are the, what's the angle that we need to take this morning on church as family to express church as family, what that means and how it's to be lived out? And I want to zoom into one, one component of church as family that if we miss this, I'm not sure it really matters how much else we do get right. And I want to show you a story in Scripture where Jesus demonstrates it. If you brought your Bible or your Bible app on your smartphone, I want to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, fourth book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. we got Bibles on the connection table if you'd like to hold a Bible, if you'd like to smell a Bible like me. The pages smell so good. You're smart. Your apps do not smell like that. Sorry. Got the text up on the screen as well. If you're just going to be lazy this morning, which is okay. This is John chapter 13, starting in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress. And the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin, began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you don't realize now what I'm doing. Later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body's clean, and you're clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set an example that you should do as I've done for you. In my opinion, this is one of the more significant moments Jesus shares with his disciples. And I want to unpack this for you today so, I can, so you guys can see why. These are some of Jesus' last days on earth. His public ministry had ended. Uh, he's been rejected. He knows he'll soon be betrayed. He'll soon be murdered. And he's sharing this meal with his closest friends. And the mood that's painted here is, is in this dramatic scene is service in the face of betrayal. That's just this, like this underlying painting that this thing gets, gets sat in. And in verse 4, we see Jesus get up from the table. He takes off his outer garments, and he girds himself with a towel. Then he pours water into a basin and begins to wash the feet of his disciples. A little background and context to explain what's going on with feet washing here. After travelers, travelers came a long distance, a host would provide for the guests water or a feet washing as a sign of hospitality. And it was customary for the lowest servant of the house to wash the feet of the guests who came inside. Now, if there was not a servant of the household, one of the early arriving guests would take the spot of the servant. They would assume that role of the house servant. Most often, it was the person who was considered the least great among them. The least important, the least significant in the room would grab the towel. So in this room, since Jesus is with his followers, they're alone in this room together, one of the disciples should have taken the spot of the servant. They should have taken the servant's responsibilities, but no one does. They're already reclined at the table for the meal. Now, I'm a student. I love learning. I love researching, especially when it comes to Scripture, learning context and background and culture. This is the stuff that makes Scripture pop. This is the stuff that makes it really come alive. So I love doing homework on stories like this. And one of the things that I, I, I found as I circled around what scholars were saying about this story, they all express how awkward this moment would have been to watch. You see, a meal like this was shared at a table known as a triclinium, it was this low U-shaped table, um, and, and this is important because they didn't sit on chairs. They're laying on their sides around the table next to each other, which means feet would have been noticeably dirty and uncomfortably close to the meal. And the reason this dinner is awkward is because no one grabbed the towel. Now, why did nobody grab the towel? This is really fascinating. I, lo I, love, I loved reading about all this. Again, this is where the, the culture and the context is so helpful. It's likely that every one of them would have grabbed the towel and washed Jesus' feet. He's their rabbi. He's their Lord. Like, they wouldn't have a problem with this. The problem, though, is that they could not have washed Jesus' feet without also being expected to wash everybody else's feet. 
And in this society, based on honor, based on hierarchy and status, washing another's feet would have been seen as acknowledging their inferiority in the room. Grabbing the towel would have been understood. It would have been a declaration to the rest of the guys in the room, admitting their insignificance amongst the group. So when they walk into the room, they're likely, the disciples, I could see it, oh, it's so good. The disciples are thinking, of course I'd wash Jesus' feet. Then I'd have to wash everybody else's feet. And that would tell the guys that I think they're greater than, that that I think they're all greater than I am. It would tell all the guys that I think that I'm the least important, the least significant, the lowest in command in the room. So imagine this. They walk in the room, and they're all giving each other eyes. Everyone's wondering, who's the least great in the room? Not going to be me. My vote is Thaddeus, but I'm not going to do him like that. Like, I can see them like thinking, like, well, Peter, he, he gets brought to the really important stuff. Like, you can, I, I could see it. I mean, imagine Jesus watching and thinking, who's going to get up? Come on, somebody get up. Have these guys learned nothing from me yet? Nothing happens. So Jesus stands up from the table, and he offers them a lesson they are never going to forget, a lesson that redefines leadership and greatness and authority, and it's authority not found in a position or a title, but in a towel. Jesus picks up the towel, and in doing so, he so thoroughly violates status norms that Peter's, like, offended by it. Lord, you're going to wash my feet? Peter's mind cannot, it cannot wrap, wrap itself around what's happening. There's no way Jesus is going to wash my feet right now. Jesus, you're the master. I'm the student. This is not how the world works. And, and while there's a level of honor being shown in this moment, I also wonder if Peter is starting to get visions of power. He's kind of the first among equals. And when Jesus grabs the towel it appears to cut at leadership privilege. Jesus is my rabbi. He's my Lord. And if he's washing feet, what's going to be expected of me then? He says, you're never going to wash my feet, Jesus. Peter, Peter, if you don't let me wash you, you have no part with me. So classic Peter, he's such an extremist. He just jumps from one side to the other. Oh, this matters that much? Okay, then don't wash my, just my feet. Do my hands and my head too. And Jesus says, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. The whole body's clean. You're clean. But not all of you are clean. Ooh, Jesus, this this just got poetic and dark and clever. The guys would have understood what he meant about having a bath. In those days, people, they had their baths at the public bath. And they would go and they they would wash themselves and they would put on their sandals and they would walk back home. And on the way home, their feet would get very dirty again. So they, have, they, would wash their, they would have their feet washed. So Jesus says, you guys already had a bath. I don't, I don't need to bathe you. I just want to wash your feet because you're, you're, you're clean. I just want to wash your feet. But not all of you are clean. And with that, Jesus shifts from feet to heart. This is what makes Jesus Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, this is Jesus. You all have dirty feet. Let me wash you clean. And one of you is about to betray me, and I'm going to get murdered because of it. And I want to wash your feet too, Judas. He he works his way around the room. 
He washes the feet of each of his students. Oh, this is one of those moments I wish, I just wish we had a camera set up. I want to see it. I want to see it in heaven. I'm going to ask God, can you show that scene? I just want to see that one. These guys must have been stunned, just awestruck, maybe even in tears. Jesus, rabbis don't wash feet. Servants wash feet. And on his knees in front of his brothers, Jesus spins their understanding of leadership. You're not given authority so that you can be served by those with less power. You're given authority so that you can serve those with less power. He finishes washing their feet. He puts his outer garments back on. He reclines back at the table. He says, do you guys understand what I just did? You call me teacher. You call me Lord. I am those. And as your teacher and Lord, I washed your feet. And the purpose is to offer you an example of how you are to treat each other. And ancient Israel students didn't learn intellectually merely from their teachers. They learned by imitating their teachers. This is why Jesus says, follow me, not come to the classroom with me. He said, walk life with me. Pay attention to how I treat people, how I pray. Learn my pace. Imitate what I do with privilege. Imitate what I do with authority. My life is an example for you. And the word Jesus is used for, he uses for example is not limited to a moment. It expresses how he wanted them to live their lives. The example of what I'm showing you right now, this is what we do with power. We serve. And it's not just when we're expected to serve. We serve when the service is undeserved. We serve when the service undermines how things are supposed to be done. You want to know what true leadership does? It takes all the power that it has, and it lays it down. And with those now new empty hands, it picks up a towel and washes feet. So disciples, grab your towel and imitate me. The point Jesus is making to his disciples is that feet washing is not reserved for dirty feet. The feet washing needs to be recontextualized, which means to wash another's feet, it's going to take on many forms. In this moment, Jesus demonstrates that whatever they do in his name, it begins with a servant's heart and a towel in hand, that if they've lived lives unto God, but they've not served each other well, they should question whether or not they've lived lives unto God. And this is where I want to turn the mirror on us this morning church as family, that whatever we do in Jesus' name, it begins with servants' hearts and towels in hand, that if we've lived lives unto God, but we've not served each other well, we might need to question whether or not we've lived lives unto God. So here's what I'd like to submit this morning. If we're above washing each other's feet, caring for the needs of our city will become a mask we hide behind. If we're above washing each other's feet, caring for the needs of our city will become a mask we hide behind. Here's what I mean. We talk a lot here about joining Jesus in the renewal of our city. If you've been around Dwell Church for a while, Clarity, then City of Reach LA, then Dwell Church, 
if you've been here for a while, you know we don't exist to become an exclusive club. Proper doctrine is not the end goal. Getting to heaven is not even the end goal. Joining Jesus, participating in his life as he offers renewal and healing and redemption and wholeness and beauty to the lives that make up our city. That's the end goal. So we think beyond us. We act beyond us. We give beyond us. We love beyond us. Because Sunday mornings are important, but they're not the point. Sunday is is important to gather, to celebrate and worship God together. We're reminded of truth. We get inspired. We're filled with love so that we can get out of this room and fill the fabric of our city with divine love. That's what we're up to. Life in God all week long. We talk about this a lot. However, please hear this. We can do all of that really well. We can join Jesus in serving our city while neglecting his instruction to serve each other. We can give generously beyond us. We can serve at the Harvest Home. We can serve the Boys and Girls Club. We can take missions trips to orphanages. But if we forget to serve each other, if we deny serving each other, we miss what Jesus was about. And it's not either or. It's both and. Jesus calls calls us to care for the needs of our city, and he calls us to care for the needs of each other. So today I want to point the arrow inward. And here's why we need to talk about this. I've been in the church world my entire life, and in my experience, it is much easier to do community service projects. It's much easier to write a check to bless someone than it is to grab a towel and get on your knees in front of someone and wash someone, someone's feet that we know. Someone maybe that frustrated us this last week, Maybe someone that's heart is full of betrayal. Local and global mission is important to us here at Dwell. Nick's going to preach on it next week. It's, it's, It's incredibly important to us. But it can become a front to disguise all that inner crap we don't want to deal with. All the stuff that we don't God to we don't want God to work on. If we're above washing each other's feet, caring for the needs of our city, it can become a mask. It will become a mask that we hide behind. So Jesus invites us. Grab your towel, follow my example, imitate me. So practically, how do we do this? I just want to give two quick suggestions, and I don't want to unpack them too long, too much, because I think they look different in everyone's live, lives, and I think, I think what we really need here is the help of the Holy Spirit. I think we need to ask Jesus, how, how do I serve people in our community well? What does this look like? How, how does this creatively come up in my own life? Two suggestions for how to wash each other's feet. Walk life with others close enough to notice their needs. And when you see a need, do something about it. Walk life close enough with others that you notice their needs. And then when you see a need, do something about it. Regarding the first suggestion, if you're not lying close enough to someone's feet, you're not going to know when they're dirty. Does that make sense? If you're not walking life with others close enough to notice their needs, you're not going to notice their needs. So church's family means being in each other's lives. It means allowing each other to get close enough to see your dirty feet, to see your needs. And it means pursuing intimacy with others so you can see when they're in need of help, when they're in need of support, when they're in need of care. 
walk life with others close enough to see their needs, to notice their needs. And then when you see a need, do something about it. And this is challenging because it requires that we put project self on hold for a second, set it aside, because I need to meet the needs of the church family member that's in front of me. We have people in our church right now with real pain, hard situations, real stuff going on in people's lives, real struggles, real hurts, real needs. I believe God places in the church the means to meeting those needs. It could, like, it could look like bringing someone groceries. It could look like offering to clean someone's apartment for them. It could look like offering to watch someone's kids so the couple can go on a date. It could, like, could look like bringing someone flowers because you know they're grieving or picking up medicine and chicken noodle soup because they're sick. There are endless ways to live this out but it requires living close enough to notice when there's a need and then doing something about it. This is church's family. I want to invite the worship team to come back up as we go into a time of response in worship through song and prayer. Also have a couple prayers at the back at the connection table during this time. The Christian life can be summed up as simple as what is Jesus saying and what are you doing about it? What is God putting on your heart and what are you doing about it? I don't know what's going on in your heart right now, but I just want to challenge you to say yes. I want to encourage you to say yes to it. Church as family. We already are family. We get to choose the kind of family we want to be. God has already called us his kids. We're siblings. Being a family is absolute. Being a healthy, life-giving family, that's our choice. What kind of family do we want to be? I found that it's easy to complain about church life. It's easy to constantly critique each other and judge each other. It's easy to complain about what not, what's not going the way we want it to here. It's easy to maintain superficial relationships with other people from arm's distance. It's easy to run away from conflict. Pseudo-intimacy is easy, but it sucks. And there's nothing compelling about that. Nobody wants to be a part of that kind of family. I sure as heck don't. What kind of church would you love to be a part of? What kind of church would you love to have? Be it. <laughs> be that church. Be that family. Because I believe if we commit to picking up the towel and serving each other as we pursue knowing Jesus, we're going to accomplish supernatural things in this community. Truly supernatural. Divine healings in our lives, divine healings through our lives. We will be conduits of wholeness and beauty and life if we can choose service as we choose church as family. you pray with me? Jesus, thank you for serving us. Thank you that you have so humbly, so stunningly served those who follow you. We offer our lives to you in this moment. 
Thank you for setting an example for how this is done. Setting down your garments, picking up the towel, washing feet when nobody else had the courage. I pray that you fill us with hope and you fill us with life and you fill us with courage. Lord, give us creative ideas for how to serve each other. I pray that you would inspire us to live intimately with each other, authentically, vulnerably with each other, to let our true selves be seen and to pursue seeing others that way and then to step up and serve as you have served us. And Lord, in doing so, may you make this community, this church family, a healing family where people come and they're restored. They're given life. Something of heaven is deposited into them because of the life-giving nature of this family. God, we want that. So help us be that. We ask all this in faith in your name, Jesus.